Well, hello again. It's time for the next session in Christian Believer, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan, and this is our weekly virtual church classroom together where we study all that we can in order to know God fully with all our heart and mind and soul and to, in some ways, better understand the heart and mind of God. I called it Christian Believer because that's what we've been doing for the last 11 weeks. We've been studying the Christian Believer materials produced by Cokesbury, written by Dr. J. Ellsworth Callis, and uh, using this material as a very loose representation of the Bible study that uh, was created for a much more in-depth purpose or, or in-depth operation, I guess, than what I'm doing. Nevertheless, it's my pleasure and my privilege to serve you with this particular mechanism, and uh, I'm excited to do this week's lesson with you because we are talking about one of the most challenging issues in all of Christian history, and the one that even today still causes controversy thanks to popular literature like Dan Brown's books, for example, The Da Vinci Code and that sort of thing. So this, this is going to be good stuff and uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you in this material. It is the 12th lesson in our series and it is the lesson entitled Fully Human, Fully Divine, Jesus Christ. Now, as we get ready to start, I want to welcome you again uh, to Southwest Indiana, to Jasper, in fact, and to my basement, to my little corner in the basement, this uh, office where I get to prepare a number of things for the service of the church and in ministry to this greater community that we have created in this virtual classroom. I am uh, looking out the window and seeing a lot of uh, uh, falling leaves now here in southern Indiana. It's finally starting to look like autumn has set in and uh, the winds are, are not nearly as, as constant or as strong as they were back on Parsons Prairie, but uh, it's been breezy and so the winds are shifting those leaves here and there and around and it's sort of like a constant uh, sort of snowfall, if, if you can imagine it, of just colorful leaves. And uh, the temperatures have been quite comfortable lately with cool evenings. It, it's definitely been that ideal autumn weather that many people claim is their favorite season of the year. We are into a time in the life of the church and the community where we're readying for those uh, holidays and uh, uh, events that seem to sort of pick up momentum as the October sets in. It's now the first week in October and most of my neighbors who care to do so have got all their Halloween decorations up and, uh, and of course the Christmas trees are already out at the store and uh, Thanksgiving meals are ready to go. And with supplies of all sorts of pumpkin stuff and <clears throat> and the various makings for a holiday feast. So it feels all together too soon to me, and yet I've come to expect it, as I know you have too. So we 
carry on. The seasons change. Our God never changes. Praise God for that. We can always count on God to be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And even as the seasons change, even as we join with America in shock and awe at yet another terrible evil event in Las Vegas this time. Seems like each week I come back, I can tell you about something new. And some of it occurs in nature and some of it is man-made. And really, we know because we are students of Scripture and because we are theologians and uh, we are are scholars of, of, uh, of doctrine and so forth, we know that all these evils, no matter what form they take, are the result of sin, and they are part of this season of the church, this, this age that we live in, where the Christians and the believers of God of every kind, the ones who are part of God's family of faith, are living in the midst of a a uh, world troubled by the powers that be, troubled by this uh, this sort of uh, confederacy, as I heard it put the other day, of Satan and evil humans. And so, you know what? There's a lot of ugliness out there, and it's not going to go away until Christ returns. Nevertheless, we are victorious through Christ, and we, though we may be victims of some of that evil, are nevertheless the salt and light that makes this world better. So let's not give up in persevering to live out the call of Christ, to be like Christ in every way that we can. So let's begin then our study time with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for showing us the way, the truth, and the light. We thank you for granting us the peace of mind that can only come from your Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, that this is an ugly world in so many ways, but we see the beauty in it, too. We see the colors of the trees in the autumn. We, we see the changing of the seasons as a reminder to us that, that uh, there are times of plenty and warmth, and there are times when it's cold and dark, and there are those times of transition between, and this is life. Life as our Creator has designed it, and therefore we live into this beautiful creation, knowing that while evil has some power, it is not ultimately victorious, and therefore we can study with confidence and pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dr. Callis says the glory of Christianity is Jesus Christ. He is also its primary issue. While the scriptures provided the basis for the church's understanding of Jesus Christ as both human and divine, it took a series of church councils to define the matter in a fashion that would prevent various heresies and that would provide a foundation of doctrinal belief for the succeeding centuries. So... Today's topic is particularly challenging because it is the nature of Jesus, our Christ or Messiah. 
Christ, by the way, is a word that means Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. They essentially say the same thing. But the interesting thing that we found difficult to agree on back in the days when we were translating Hebrew into Greek was just exactly how Jesus is to be interpreted as a being. You see, when people started talking about Christianity openly, after it became an acceptable topic because of the end to persecution of the church, then it became uh, a matter of, of more scholarly debate and more public debate. When it was handled in a more private way, when people met in secret, uh, there were fewer people uh, communicating these principles of doctrine and theology or the nature of God, and in particular Christology, which is the nature of Jesus, the Christ. And uh, when, when these people were meeting in secret, uh, there couldn't be a lot of open discussion. There had to be some general consent because a lot of times they had limited time and, uh, and they had to be very careful not to get caught in teaching the doctrines of the faith in Jesus Christ. And what everybody came to understand pretty early on, that was Jesus, this man from Nazareth, who was uh, alive and amongst the people for a time, was uh, also a miracle worker, a savior, and he was the one who died on the cross and then rose again and, uh, and who ascended into heaven. And these basic understandings form what we call the Apostles' Creed, which is that shorter version of the Nicene Creed that, that we have uh, been discussing in this particular study. The Apostles' Creed is this very basic statement that was uh, a way of describing the nature of Jesus and the nature of our salvation. But then the question that we touched on last week became... Uh, a fairly commonly asked question. So, so how did he save us then? Because if he just died for us, well, you know, people have died for others before. Remember, we talked about that last week. And uh, if there was something about his death that saved us, well, why did he do it? And why wouldn't somebody else's death do it? You know, that kind of thing. And so we finally had to accept the fact that Christ was in a unique position because he was sinless in that he was never separated from God by sin. And even that doesn't completely get it for us, because if we get right down to it, we could conceive of a person possibly doing that. Now, we know in our hearts that that can't be true. We know that the holiest people we've ever known of, like, say, Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or somebody like that, we, we know that even they have sinned, especially when sin is defined pretty simply as denying God in some way or another. To just simply resist God's authority, to question God's character, to doubt God in a way that betrays you know, authentic trust for God, then, then, then you've sinned. You've, you've basically turned your back on God. And and you say, well, how do I know that? Just go back to those earlier lessons. But the short version is, is that uh, we see that illustrated in the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were willing to trust God and to do exactly what God said until uh, Satan, in the form of this serpent, comes into the garden and puts doubt in their minds about whether God is really good. 
and whether God really tells the truth and whether God is acting in their best interests. And so Satan basically infects humanity with this need to be self-directed, self-fulfilled, and therefore distrust God in some way that uh, betrays God's confidence and so, uh, or, or, or character, I mean. And so therefore, we're back to how does Jesus then save us from that natural tendency to betray God's uh, character and to deny God's character. And one conclusion we came to was that Jesus never did that. So in that regard, he is in, uh, in a unique position as the one and only human being who never did that, and therefore the only one who could take a punishment on our behalf, because anyone else who took that punishment for me would be just as guilty in their own right, and uh, so they really wouldn't be helping me at all. Now, that's a good way to look at the nature of our salvation as far as it goes. But now we have to dig into the really, really touchy issue of just exactly how Jesus is unique in all of time and space and human history. And his uniqueness begins with his conception. We believe that Mary, a virgin, having never, ever been involved with a man in a way that would cause her to become pregnant, is suddenly made pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, this child within her is both the product of her womb and the Holy Spirit. And so, this makes Jesus a unique being in all of history and time and space, because he is both the Son of God and the Son of Mary. He is fully God and fully human. And this we take on faith, and not to say that it is a faith that is uninformed, but it is a faith in a mystery. And as you remember from previous studies, mystery in religion is simply a way of describing what can't be described. It's called a mystery when we simply cannot find enough words to adequately describe something. And so we call it a mystery. And so the mystery of the incarnation, that is the making of flesh, incarnate is a Latin word, it just means uh, of the flesh, you know, have you ever had chili con carne? It's a, it's a, a lovely dish that's made a hundred thousand different ways in America, but it all stems from the fact that it's made from meat, carne. So Jesus is meat, he's flesh. But he is incarnate, meaning that he is divine being who is in flesh. And so we see in Jesus fully human and fully divine. And this becomes the other critical element of our salvation. Because now we're not only seeing a person sacrificed, though he doesn't deserve the punishment, on our behalf, but this is more than just anybody. This is this is very, this is this is God. Um, to put it another way, when you go to certain structures, I remember when I was going to school uh, for uh, for my seminary training in Chicago, in, in Evanston, actually, the seminary had uh, on its main bell tower uh, four pelicans. And uh, literally stone-carved pelicans who have their beak tucked under their wing and in their breast. 
And if you look closely, there's blood coming from their breast. And this is a symbol of the incarnate nature of the divine sacrifice. In other words, it's a, uh, and, and, and it's said that the pelicans do this in order to feed their young, that they literally save their young from dying of starvation by giving them of their own blood. And so the pelican became a symbol uh, in that it took its own blood, interestingly, from its breast, like, uh, like that spear uh, thrust in Jesus that is so uh, powerful in its illustration of how he shed all of his blood, even all of the serum in his body, for our sake. And this blood becomes the life of the young. And so what we see is God doing the same, God taking God's own flesh and sacrificing it for the sake of the child or for the sake of those who would be God's children through Jesus. And so this is the essence of the human and divine nature as it implies our salvation or as it uh, affirms our salvation. Now, did you do your scripture reading last week? I hope so. Uh, the scriptures are the truth and the source from which I get the things that I say to you, and I don't want you to, uh, to just rely on me to interpret things for you. Read the scriptures for yourself. Ask hard questions. And these are not easy scripture readings because they're long, and there's plenty for you to read each week. And if you're taking this serious study, uh, study seriously, then you know uh, that that you've got a major commitment to reading. But uh, how did you see Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 7? There was this prediction of a king that would come. And uh, the sense in that is that a king is more than, than uh, just any person. This is someone who is descended by divine right in order to receive that uh, that particular status as ruler. Uh, and therefore, if you read in Micah, how many times have you read Micah in your Bible study over the years? And Micah describes this ruler who would come from Bethlehem. And of course, we saw that happen in his birth. And uh, then there was Psalm 22, where the people are looking for such a savior, looking for such a leader in their lives. And uh, the Isaiah tells them that the answer is in a suffering servant, which to them at the time would have seemed utterly absurd and illogical. But we know, because we have the benefit of hindsight, that it was through his suffering that all who were exiled could be encouraged and know that they are going to be okay. And that's what you read in the Psalms and Isaiah. Then when you read Matthew chapter 1 and read the story of Jesus' birth, you saw how all the predictions about this Messiah, this Christ, were uh, made true in that event. And then as you read further, you saw that uh, you know Jesus was declared by God in the presence of the angels and uh, and Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, I mean uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, they were they were both able to see the answer to their prayers. And uh, I've often thought, by the way, that the Mount of Transfiguration, that what may very well have happened was a 
uh, event from outside of time that happened in each of those persons' time. In other words, when Moses ascended the mountain to be in the presence of God, he may very well have done so and arrived at the same moment when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and when Elijah entered into the presence of God, he may have done so at the precise moment when Moses and uh, uh, Jesus are both on the mountain at the same time. If we think of it that way, we can see how God is outside of space and time, but when he invites people who are limited to space and time into his presence, they can all be in the same place at the same time, even though within time and space, they were thousands of years apart from one another. Wow. I, I don't know about you, but I think it's fun to think about stuff like that. It's also a little tiring. Anyway, back to the scriptures. So did you read John 1? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, John may be using the Word with a capital W to describe Jesus, but there's no missing his point, is there? And then you read Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, and uh, there's clear understanding after Christ has come and fulfilled Christ's purpose that we are seeing in him the supreme answer to God's plan, Christ who is even superior to the angels. And uh, hopefully in all of your reading, you, gave, you made some great discoveries and gained a lot of, of wonderful insight in that. But let's talk now about Christ and the nature of Jesus, the fully human and the fully divine. We owe a lot to those who came before us on this particular topic. I would imagine that some of you, as I was beginning this study and saying that you needed to see it as an interpretation of the Nicene Creed, were probably thinking, now I came for a Bible study. Why is he talking about the Nicene Creed? And what's wrong with the Apostles' Creed anyway? And, you know, I'm saying this because, beloved, I've heard it before. And a lot of times it has... Uh, everything to do with our comfort. And, uh, you know, there's just nothing about being a Christian that is intended to be comfortable. And uh, so, if you want to really embrace a relationship with God through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to get used to being uncomfortable, but it'll make you better in more ways than you can possibly imagine. And uh, the... Uh, uh, Sorry, I just got a text that a baby has been born that we've been waiting for for a long time. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you. Now, so this, full, uh, this fully human, fully divine person of Jesus, we pretty much wrap our minds around that because we, have people, we are people in a generation who has been raised, at least those of us who grew up in church, with the benefit of these teachings. But imagine how it was in those days after Jesus ascended and after the apostles were beginning to die off and after uh, we entered into a time of relative freedom for Christianity where they are no longer persecuted, but in fact welcomed as the official state religion of Rome. I'm not sure that Constantine did us any favors then, but nevertheless... It created a whole new dialogue, and this dialogue was brewing out on the fringe for a long time, believe me. People were asking the question, well, how could Jesus raise from the dead? It was a lot easier for them to imagine that maybe he wasn't even a real human being, but that we were simply experiencing Jesus in a way that was convincing enough to us to think he was real. And then there were people who were thinking that, that he was some sort of spirit man, and there were, there were all kinds of crazy ideas about what Jesus 
was and how Jesus was. And I say crazy, not because, uh, uh, you know, I have any authority to judge their ideas, but because history has judged their ideas, because the Spirit has judged their ideas. The things they said were more uh, heretical, that is, they were heresy, than most of the true believers could stomach. Now, this brings us to a, time, a moment to, to do a little bit of uh, side learning. You may have heard the word heresy, and you may have wondered what that means, and, and uh, maybe you've heard of a heretic or something like that. And uh, heresy is not limited to Christianity, but it is most often heard in it. But heresy in general is a term that means uh, disrespecting or disagreeing with doctrine. And doctrine is a word that really decides, uh, determines the boundaries around our belief system. In other words, doctrine is, is, uh, is sort of that absolute boundary. Uh, to make it more clear, I would put it to you this way. Um, once we agree to the general terms of what it means to be a Christian, you know, that we all agree then that if we're Christians, we believe that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We agree that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. We believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, these are basic, fundamental beliefs of Christianity, and they're absolutes in our minds. In, in other words, those of us who claim Christ and, we, and, and call ourselves Christians, though we may be of a variety of denominational backgrounds and so forth and traditions, we all agree about these fundamental things, and therefore they are doctrine or boundaries. And so when someone says, for example, that they don't believe that Jesus was human, then they are breaking with one of the foundational beliefs of being a Christian. If they say, for example, that Jesus was not born of a virgin and that Jesus uh, was a spirit being, then they're violating fundamental doctrinal beliefs that all Christians seem to be able to agree upon, and at least those Christians who have been given some sort of divine authority or human authority to declare the rules of the game and the boundaries of the playing field. And so doctrine literally means the playing field's boundaries. And uh, when you're inside those boundaries, we may have differing opinions about certain aspects of it, but we all agree on these fundamental boundaries or rules of the game. And so that's doctrine, and heresy, then, is a violation of doctrine. And therefore, it can literally be said that uh, when someone's on the playing field and they are entertaining all kinds of interesting and, and uh, fascinating theological and Christological uh, ideas, uh, soteriological, remember that one from last week, the nature of our salvation? If they're entertaining all of these different ideas and at some point they cross the boundary, then, then some referee somewhere is going to blow the whistle and call them out of bounds. And at that point, if they say, I reject your rules and I choose to make the playing field extend even over here where I am, well, then they would be declared a heretic. And uh, in, in church history, what that means is they get thrown out of the game and uh, they get sent to the locker room. And if they still don't consent, they get sent to fine. And if they still don't consent, you know, 
well, a long time ago, it usually ended up being a burning at the stake. Fascinating thing is, is that in our church history, we can see where heretics uh, were, in some cases, reformers, and they weren't actually as heretic, heretical as they, they once seemed, because with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that they were right in that they asked the change to happen in the church. And so some suffered, even burned at the stake, for introducing... Uh, a new idea to the church that it wasn't quite ready for, and then suffering the consequences. And yet later, their intention to bring reform blessed all of us. And so this is church history. It really works that way. The nature of Jesus as the human and divine Savior, it was one of those kind of debates. There was a great deal of discussion about just exactly what Jesus was, and it was finally taken down to uh, the various leaders that now, being in favor with the government, were authorized to have councils or, or conferences where they would come to some sort of decision about these things. And so, these councils might last for weeks on end, and uh, you know, try to imagine something like the uh, the uh, various conventions that come to town. If you're in a place like Indianapolis, let's say, or Kansas City, or whatever, and 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 the International Brotherhood of uh, of uh, whatever you know shows up, and they have their annual meeting, and they have votes about certain things, and that becomes their doctrine. I mean, they say this is this is what we agree is is absolute that these are the boundaries and so these councils were called by constantine who was the the roman ruler who became a christian and who endorsed christianity even making it the state religion uh, in uh, this uh, byzantium in this this region where he ruled and uh, he was uh, fond of, of uh, the Roman way of getting things done. He introduced a certain uh, uh, Republican proc, uh, processes to the, to the way of the church. And again, I don't know whether we'll thank him or not, but uh, maybe the jury is still out. Nevertheless, he caused a... Uh, revolution in the way that we think about religion and the way that we think about the the uh, aspects of of Christ's nature and the form and function of the church. And one of those revolutionary things was to once and for all settle the question of what Jesus's true nature was and is. And the determination that was made gave us the Nicene Creed, which states plainly just exactly the nature of Jesus. And this debate resulted in, let's see, how many councils were there? There were seven major church councils, and uh, each one of them covered a variety of topics, but the most major and significant topic was, of course, the nature of Jesus Christ. And uh, and so we can be thankful to them for giving us a way of interpreting this nature. How does the creed describe Jesus, basically? It says to us that while he was once with God and who uh, was not uh, someone who came uh, through, through God. In other words, uh, the, the most significant thing that we learn in the, the, the initial uh 
outcome of the councils was that Jesus did not uh, come from God in the sense that God didn't make Jesus, that Jesus is coexistent with God, that, that uh, Jesus is one in being with the Father. And through him all things are made. In other words, this first conclusion that had to be arrived at was, does Jesus play a secondary role to God the Father, or is Jesus equal to God the Father? There were people then and even now who would rather say that God came first, then God left heaven, came down to earth, became a human being, and so therefore God's chair in heaven is vacant while he's on earth, and then he does his thing on earth, and then ascends back to heaven, uh, and then returns as the Holy Spirit. And, and so there's a sort of linear succession. And yet scripture indicates to us in a variety of ways that they are coexistent. When, uh, when Jesus prays to the Father, he is in fact one with the Father, even though he is apart from the Father because of his fleshly existence. And in the same way, Jesus acknowledges that the Spirit is working in the church and in the people and in him, even while he is existent and the Father is existent. And so Jesus himself gives us a way of understanding that they are the three all exist or coexist. In the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, we see a number of places where it isn't said in an outright way, but it's said consistently in an implicit way that there is always the one who is God, the creator, the father. There is always the one who is the son and there is always the spirit. And so when we study it in scripture, we recognize, for example, in the creation that the spirit hovered over the earth and then God spoke now, this could be a literary device, but it seems to give us an indication of the uniqueness of the Spirit from the Father, and yet the oneness of the Spirit with the Father. And then John tells us in John chapter 1 that the Word, meaning Jesus, the, the Christ, or the mind of God expressed in human flesh, is uh, one with the Father, and that through him all things are made, that he is, is uh, with God and in God, and through him all of creation occurs. And so we have these, these, uh, these scriptural references that make it clear to us that there is this three-in-one mutual coexistence. And so we understand Jesus to be fully divine, not descended from God or uh, a created being by God, but one with God the Father. And in the same way, the Spirit is described as being sent or being a, a expression from the Father and the Son. <coughs> Excuse me. And therefore, these are uh, three in existence. So, um, you get this picture, I hope. I, I'm sorry. I want to stop just a second here. I'm going to put you on pause, and I'm going to grab uh, a copy of something really fast. Hang on. All right. So for you, that was a split second. For me, that was a few minutes of research. You know, the problem with making these podcasts is that once I start talking and the recorder starts recording, uh, if I decide that I need more information, I have to hit pause because otherwise I'm a blithering idiot. And who wants to tune in 
to a blithering idiot. Wait a minute, we do it every day when we listen to certain DJs and so forth, don't we? I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, that means in equivalent substance, with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate, made flesh of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. There's another one that came up during this time of controversy and heresy is uh, how do we know he was really dead? You know, and, and if he was a spirit being, then you couldn't kill him. And so they only thought they killed him. But no, no, the creed is established as, uh, as uh, someone, uh, as, as these divine councils receive divine guidance. And they, through a process of spiritual conferencing, uh, come to the conclusion based on study, research, and, uh, and a consensus that could only be created by the Holy Spirit. They've given us the boundaries, and the boundaries specify plainly that he died and he was buried. And we know he was dead. We know that Jesus was dead. I, I don't like talking about death. And, uh, and yet, i got to be quite honest with you. I've seen more than my fair share of it, and I'm sick of it. Because the one thing I can tell you is when you look upon the dead, you will see the absence of life. You will know when someone is dead because there is no life. It is simply an awful reality of death. And when Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross, so that even when they jab a spear in his side to make sure he's dead and a little bit of blood and serum dribble out, we see this is certainly death. And it is this dead being, this dead person who is laid in the tomb and in accordance with scriptures rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we believe he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. In other words, they are three in one. Who, with the Father and the Son, is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And by the way, that's a small c Catholic, and that means universal. Capital C Catholic in these days means the Roman Catholic Church, but small c Catholic means the church universal, and an apostolic church means that it is a church that descends universally from the apostles who bore witness to Jesus and gave Jesus' mandate uh, a go and gave us the church that we now have even to this day. And we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So there's the Nicene Creed in its uh, most uh, 
original form. It's not that different in other forms. But what we read in that, again, is this affirmation that Christ is uniquely made for the purpose of fulfilling all that God that is described in the Nicene Creed, which is all that God has in store for us, this restored relationship with God, this restoration of all creation, and this judgment to come. And, and all of this is stated in the Nicene Creed that came from these series of councils that led to uh, what we for the most part, take for granted, and uh, many of us. And so here's to not taking it so much for granted. Amen? Now, this has been kind of a rant on my part, I guess. Uh, to be honest with you, as I looked at this lesson, I thought, my goodness, um, this is a full semester of seminary. It really is. This one lesson is a full semester in seminary. Uh, would be called Church History. And uh, the history of church uh, doctrine, and and uh, we would be talking for hours and hours and studying pages and pages and pages of material. And I've tried to sum it up for you in a commentary, basically, so that you might have a better grasp of exactly how the church views Jesus as being fully human and fully divine. And uh, so my hope for you then is that you will dig deeper on your own and feel free to contact me if you'd like to talk more about this. Now I'd like to uh, get ready to close our time together. Uh, keep in mind that the fundamental learning this week, Lesson 12, is that Christ Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And in that way, we justified in accepting him as our Lord and our Savior. He is our Savior. We already understand why and how, but he is also our Lord. And uh, he literally is a person we can follow, like a Lord or a King. And uh, this we should do. Even, even us ornery Americans who don't like getting told what to do by anybody. So, give this a lot of thought. Discuss it with your loved ones and friends. Take it back to church. Talk with your classmates and your uh, church friends and your pastors and so forth. But uh, understand that this is a foundational belief. This is one of those boundaries that we shouldn't try to cross. We need to see that Jesus is someone who, being fully human, entirely and completely relates to us in our nature, and even our te uh, temptation towards sin. And yet, this is the only being who really had this oneness with God that could only be achieved through a sinless life and a shared being. Let's uh, close our time together now with the prayer of Soren Kierkegaard, another one of the great theologians of uh, the 1800s, who said, Thou who didst once wander the earth, leaving footprints which we should follow, thou who still from thy heaven dost look down upon each wanderer, dost strengthen the weary, encourage the despondent, lead back the erring, comfort the striving, Thou who also at the end of days shalt return to judge whether each man individually has followed thee. Our God and our Savior, 
Let thine example stand clearly before the eyes of our soul to to disperse the mists. Strengthen us that unfalteringly we may keep this before our eyes, that we, by resembling and following thee, may later find the way to the judgment. For it behooves every man to be brought to the judgment. Oh, but also though also through thee to be brought to eternal happiness hereafter with thee. Amen. I look forward to being with you again next week, and I want to encourage you to do the scripture readings that will be laid out for you uh, in the description box below this podcast. I encourage you to... Uh, Communicate with us. Let me know that uh, you're being blessed by this. And uh, you can tell me in person if you're one of those who attends the Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. And if you're one who listens from a distance, well, shoot me an email. I'm always, always happy to hear from you. And if you happen to be listening from over the seas somewhere, I will really enjoy hearing from you just to know where you are and so that I can pray with you and uh, celebrate being in this walk with you. We are a ministry of the Shiloh United Methodist Church. This podcast wouldn't be possible without my paycheck from the church that I serve as the senior pastor. It is my privilege and honor to give you this extension of our ministry together. Don't go it alone. Be a part of a church somewhere. Be part of a family of faith. You can't do this alone. I promise you, you'll be blessed. And if you're having a little trouble finding the right place, be kind, love them, and keep looking. God has a place for you. For now, I wish you a fine week, and I pray that you, wherever you are, will serve and love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. God bless you. Goodbye.